Okay, so today is our last message in the Why Church series. Um, Thus far, we have looked at uh, small groups. We've looked at God's purpose for the church. We've examined biblical leadership together, uh, our Sunday morning meeting, and what that's all about as well. So today, we we wrap up this series by looking at the subject of of mission. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, in a passage that is described as the Great Commission, a term that was popularized by Hudson Taylor, and it begins in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, what, a, what a ma- an amazingly comprehensive, divine passage this is, and how we long to understand it, and equally important, how we long to be able to apply it within this church as a people and in each of our lives. Help us this morning, inspire us this morning, instruct us this morning that we can do that very thing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question. It's a question that's drawn from that term that was coined by Hudson Taylor, the Great Commission. My question is this. What makes the Great Commission truly great? You know, I was converted in college somewhere around 1979. I think I've mentioned to you in the past that I don't remember the day. I don't remember the hour. But, but I do remember this zealous group of Christians that I was kind of converted into. And part of the new way I knew that they were zealous is be, that because long before I knew about fellowship, long before I knew about the sacraments, long before I knew about the priority of preaching or anything that we've talked about in the context of this series, I discovered there was this mysterious thing that I was supposed to obey that was called the Great Commission. And it was always pronounced that way in a kind of slow, reverential manner, the Great Commission. And older Christians would talk about it with a sense of wonder, as if they were caught in some kind of spell of longing and and adventure. And I didn't know what it was, but I saw the effect of this Great Commission thing. I saw how it it would snatch graduates and send them to faraway places. They would disappear for months at a time. And it only seemed to take the most, the most zealous kids that were on campus. You know, if you were lukewarm and ambivalent about Jesus, well, you were not at risk. 
the Great Commission was going to leave you alone. But if you were looking to do damage for Jesus, then look out. John would be involved in the campus group. He'd be attending classes. He'd be dating Cindy. And then all of a sudden, bam, he's gone. What happened? Well, the Great Commission snatched him and sent him to some kind of faraway place. And oh, I wanted that experience. I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be snatched up by the Great Commission and launched to some faraway place to do some damage for Jesus. And I would read these stories and hear these stories of people in history. Amazing saints who gave up their comforts and gave up their family and gave up their safety and their stability for the gospel. And it was inspiring. And I remember thinking, maybe that's what makes this Great Commission so great. It's the ability to inspire great sacrifices for a great cause from great people. And I wasn't sure, but I knew it was something special. Because somehow it would only capture and catapult the best and the brightest. And then I remember thinking, maybe that's why they called it great, because it stirs great burdens and great people to do great things and go to great places. And the reality was I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't know what it was all about. All I knew is that I wanted in. I didn't want the greatness of this commission to pass me by. Keith Green Memorial Concert, 1982. At the end of the concert, they gave a call to the fields, and it was in that moment that the Great Commission grabbed me, kind of jacked me up against the wall. And I remember at the conclusion of, of, of that event, they, I answered a call by, by standing up because they, they invited everybody that felt stirred to go to respond to the Great Commission to stand. And so I answered the call by standing up by standing tall, by standing to be counted, by standing to go to the ends of the earth. And all of this came as quite a shock to my brand new wife who was seated next to me and was looking up at me with that, what in the world are you doing look on her face? And the reality was, I didn't know what I was doing. And it didn't matter what I was doing, because I wanted this thing that grabs the most zealous people and transports them to the end of the world. I didn't want the gospel train to leave without me. I didn't want this adventure to pass me by. I wanted to be part of the greatness of this commission. So, here I am. 32 years later. And honestly, my life didn't turn out quite the way I expected. Sure, I've traveled a bit, but I've never made my home in a third world nation or lived the kind of nomadic adventures that are written about in missionary biographies. And, and, and for a while, that question dogged me. You know, did, did I miss out? Did I cop out? Did I downgrade the Great Commission to, yeah, it's a Great Commission, but it's not really a good idea for me? Remember my original question? What makes the Great Commission truly great? Is it the sacrifice that it calls for? Is it the people that, that, that go in response to it? Is it the people or the places that they go to? Well, I think the answer to that question is right here in Matthew chapter 28. And so I want to discover the answer together as we return here. And I want to offer to you four 
different points on what makes the Great Commission truly great. And here's the first one. Our, our commission is truly great because it starts with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let's just stop there for a second and think about what's being said. All authority, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth has been transferred from the Father to Jesus Christ. And I want us to ponder what's being said there. All authority. Over Satan, all authority. Over governments of the world, all authority. Over the media, over those who are hostile to Christianity, all authority. Even over the doubts of some of those that are standing there listening to Jesus Christ, all authority. You know, we've been rightly taught to consider the power of the cross by what it cost God, that sin was so bad that it took blood, the blood of God, to take it away. But this commission invites us to also ponder the power of the cross through what it secured for Jesus Christ, all authority on heaven and on earth. So God invites us to look at the fields of our neighborhood, the fields of our community, the fields of our job, and think in terms of all authority. To look on the, the fields of the United States, the fields of the UK and Europe and Africa and Asia with a new confidence because there's a sense that because of the cross and the resurrection, the, the contract has been signed by God. The rights have been reserved. The authority for the gospel to be put into circulation within the world has been secured. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus said. And this authority right here in Matthew chapter 28 forms the foundation, the bedrock for all evangelism and all missions. In fact, this first all is what triggers the remaining alls. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. That first all is what all of the other alls are built upon. Because it locks down all that is necessary for God's people to serve God's warrant to the world, to tell people that they are wanted by God. So on Friday, as I'm flying back from Louisville, and I'm sitting next to a woman from Seattle, I'm, I'm able to share with her my story of how Jesus came to me, and I'm able to share with her the story of God's love for her, and I'm able to do so with feeling no pressure, no manipulation, no sales pitch, just a confidence that Christ has secured all authority to win people to himself and to be able to inform other people that because of Jesus and because of the authority he has secured, they are wanted by God. And here's what's really amazing about that is that that authority that Jesus has purchased through his blood, that authority guarantees results in our evangelism and in our mission. That Christ had, now has the rights to completely accomplish all of his will. 
so that as we go forth, we know that we're going with an authority and under an authority that has been locked down and that will inevitably bear fruit. I, I mean, it almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? We often hear that term, results guaranteed. And, and we think about, you know, slick salesmen or trendy diets or, you know, just thin promises that are offered us from other people. But this is not like that at all. See, our commission is great because it guarantees results from proclaiming the gospel. It guarantees them. You know, there's this really cool section of uh, Acts chapter 18 where Paul is being battered by attacks and he's fearful in going forth. I think he's in Corinth at that time. And, And Jesus Christ speaks to him and Christ says to him, don't be afraid keep speaking. I have many in this city who are my people. Now, here's the kicker about that statement is because at that point, as Jesus is saying that to Paul, there are only a small handful of Christians that are there yet. That promise, that statement is a reference to those who are yet to be converted. In other words, God saw them, he chose them, his son died for them, his authority secured them, and the mission would ultimately reap them. And so so God was saying it to Paul as if it's locked down in history. Because we have a great commission, and that's part of what what makes the great commission truly great. Our commission is great because that foundation of all authority guarantees fruit. The foundation guarantees fruit. And so we know that the king's edict. We know that the, a poor economy or a closed country or the obstinance of a man or a woman ultimately won't stall the effect and the impact of the gospel in their life. Why? Because Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So our commission is great because it starts with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's the second point. Our commission is great because it includes the church. It includes the church. You say, well, Dave, what does that mean? As I look at this passage, I only see the the 11 in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to the Galilee. It seems like the 11 are the ones that actually received the great commission. Well, yeah, it was originally given to the 11, but it was given to the 11 with their, the entirety of their roles in view. Now think about this with me for a second. You know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, God would address leaders not only as individuals, but as they represented a group of people. So the prophets or the kings or whatever leader it was. In like manner, the Great Commission is given to the 11, it's given to the apostles, but it's also given to them as they represent the church that would be soon formed as a result of the gospel going forth. And I say that for this reason. I say that because the scope of the commission, the scope of the commission, evidently moves way beyond the 12. It does. It moves way beyond the 12. Three reasons for that. Think about this. Just, let's just break apart the passage and you'll see what I mean. First, the target of the passage is all nations, pentata ethne, all nations. So think about it. It's impossible to imagine 
that the 11 are going to circulate to all the nations of the earth. So there must be another group in view. It must be God's people, the church, that are in view. But not only that, think about the duration. This whole program is supposed to continue until until the end of the age. That's the last section in verse 20. To the end of the age. That's how long this program goes in view. So the 11 were ultimately going to die, and this commission would still go on. And so the you of verse 20 and 21, teaching them to absorb all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. The you is not just the 11, it's the entire church through the age. So the target is one of the reasons we know that this great commission was given not only to the 11, but to the church. The duration is one of the reasons we know that the Great Commission was given not only to the 11, but to the church. But also, and here's the last reason, it's the application of the Great Commission in the New Testament. In other words, if if the book of Acts and the entire New Testament is a chronicle of how the disciples understood and obeyed and applied the Great Commission, then we see that the, the Great Commission was not the result of kind of highly motivated, entrepreneurial individuals that were becoming a grassroots revolution in taking the gospel to other nations. You know, there's, there's so much writing today that kind of elevates the individual Christian and marginalizes the role of the church. But it's not like that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, churches are at the center of missions. They emerge as the fruit of missions, as the focus of missions, as the fuel of missions. When God begins the invasion of the gospel into the Gentile world, in Acts chapter 13, in the book of of Acts, it's talking about Antioch. It says, in the church at Antioch, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and the Spirit of God says, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And the invasion of the gospel into the Gentile world begins. Where did it start? In the church at Antioch. See, sadly, we live in a day where there's been a kind of divorce between the church and the Great Commission. And I brought a quote with me that I just think summarizes this in a brilliant way. A guy named George Peter, who's a missiologist, said once, quote, The history of the church in missions is, in the main, the history of great personalities and of missionary societies. Only in exceptional cases has it been the history of the church in missions. Now think about that. Think about the chronicle of of books that have been written throughout history, the the biography. See, so much of contemporary mission, so much of contemporary missiology is built around these exceptional missionaries in history. Amazing men and women, by the way, amazing men and women that made incredible sacrifices that the gospel would go forward. And and there's a very real sense where we stand on their shoulders and we thank God for their vision. And we're so grateful to God that he raised them up. But when it comes to mobilizing churches today, those biographies, they provide a great 
example and illustration of godliness, but they don't necessarily provide models for the church's role in the Great Commission. The point that I'm trying to get at at is that the commission is great because it had not just the 11 in view, but the church in view as well. Not just the 11 in view, but the entire church. So the Great Commission doesn't land on me simply as an individual. It lands upon my local church. It doesn't simply call me to something as an individual. It calls our entire church. Quote by John Piper, he said, It was not merely given to the apostles for their ministry, but was given to the church for its ministry as long as this age lasts. So when you, when you think about the audience for the Great Commission, the way I like to understand the audience is the 11 got it, the church finishes it. The 11 got it, the church finishes it. Now, how does the church finish the Great Commission? Well, I want to suggest to you that the church finishes the Great Commission by planting local churches. And I want to suggest to you as well that the origin of church planting is found in the shadows of Matthew chapter 28. Think about, just, just think about it for a second. Let's just slow down the ingredients of Matthew chapter 28. Let's think about the ingredients of the commission themselves. Let's make disciples. That's the imperative in this passage. Everything kind of revolves around the imperative, the, the go, the baptize, the teach. Those are the ways that we obey the command of making disciples. And so when you think about those, you know, going and baptizing can be applied pretty randomly. You know, you can go anywhere and you can baptize in anywhere. But when you begin to, to study the New Testament and, and we begin to move to teaching and making disciples, and, and how and where did teaching and making disciples take place, all of a sudden we see this context emerge in the New Testament of the local church. So, when we survey the local church to see how the Great Commission worked out, we find that there was teaching centered in elderships and discipleship was taking place in the context of the local church. Actually, we can rightly argue that, that baptism as a sacrament of the local church assumes the church as well. So the Great Commission kind of assumes a context, not just a message going, not just a message baptizing, but we have to make disciples. We have to teach them. And when we see how that took place in the New Testament, it was through the local church. And the challenge is that the Great Commission has been reduced down to simply going and baptizing in the, in the minds of a lot of different Christians. You know, it's kind of like the Great Commission is this, you know, buffet that we walk through. And we see before, you see, going and making disciples and teaching and baptizing. And we're walking through and we think, oh, this all looks so delicious. I like the going. I think I'll have a little bit more of the baptizing. But no, no, no teaching for me, no discipleship for me. You know, that kind of saps my energy. That kind of, that kind of slows me down during the day. In fact, part of my story as a new believer was that it was evident that missions was something that was always done outside of the church. 
And there was this inexplicable exodus of zealous Christians outside of the church when it came to, quote, do missions. Because there was this assumption that the church worships, the church fellowships, the church disciples, the church cares. But missions is something we do outside of the church, away from the church, without the hindrance of the church. And this is where we must kind of embrace the full scope of Matthew chapter 28. Because going without making disciples is an aborted commission. Baptizing without teaching is really birth without growth. In other words, if my mission is to relocate to Latin America or to Eritrea over in Africa, simply preach the gospel, then I'm only going and baptizing. And I'm not disparaging the need to send people to to go and to baptize and to break new ground and to do pioneer missions. There is a need to do that, but they must always carry within their heart the goal of the church, the very goal that we see manifested within the New Testament. Because for our commission to be truly great, it must embrace all of the ingredients of Matthew chapter 28. And that is why the study of Missions in the New Testament is really a study about churches and church planting. It was why Paul was always sent from churches and received into churches. It was why Paul's labors resulted in churches and his letters were addressed to churches. It's why the aim of missions is never to separate from the church, but to result in the church. So that's the second one that makes the Great Commission great. Let me, let me point you to the third one. And this gets even more interesting the deeper we get into it as to what God really had in view with the Great Commission. Here's the next one. Our commission is great because all can participate. Everyone can participate. Let, let's do this for a second. Let's, let's jump out of Matthew chapter 28. And let's jump into a passage in the New Testament, which you may have never even read before because it's an astonishing passage about how the Great Commission actually worked in one area and called upon everyone in that area. And I'm talking about Romans chapter 15, verse 19. So you can flip over there. It'll also flash on the screens behind me. This is what Paul says as he's talking to the Romans. He says, so that... From Jerusalem, all the way around to Illyricum, now get this, he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, just, just stop there for a second and think about what he's saying. Illyricum was a region above Macedonia, ran, ran parallel to Italy. He, he's saying, in that region... Over there, in that section of the world, great commission fulfilled. I've done it. I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, we've got to wrestle with the question here. What in the world creates that sense of accomplishment in the mind of Paul? What had happened that Paul was actually able to make that statement that gave him a sense of confidence that over there, the great commission had been fulfilled? Well, I want to tell you, it was not because Paul had preached the gospel to every lost person in that region. It was not because Paul had recruited and mobilized a number of 
great commission workers, as noble as that may appear. It was not that he had mastered contemporary technology so that he could get the gospel into every household. And by the way, some of those are commendable ambitions. I'm not coming against them. All I'm saying is that that's not part of the strategy that Paul employed that resulted in that statement in Scripture. That statement can only be assigned to one extraordinary reality, and that is that Paul had started local churches throughout that region. In fact, if you map that onto the biblical ge geography, you realize that, that Thessal the Thessalonian church had begun. The Philippian church begun. The Corinthian church, the Ephesian church. Along the entire arc of that region, there had been churches planted. And so, Paul considered the ministry of the gospel of Christ fulfilled when a solid local gospel-preaching church had been planted. And that's an astonishing thing to think about. I brought a quote with me from a guy named Everett Harrison who did a commentary, the expositor's commentary on Romans. He said, quote, The statement, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, is not intended to mean that he had preached in every community between the two points mentioned, but that he had faithfully preached the message in the major communities along the way, listen, leaving to his converts the more intensified evangelizing of the surrounding districts. In other words, this is what's being said. Paul had started local churches. The churches were in these strategic centers within the New Testament, and the churches would accept responsibility for evangelism in their regions. Starting local churches in strategic centers, but the churches would accept responsibility for their communities. What's the strategy for the Great Commission to be completed according to Romans chapter 15? Here it is. You ready? It's churches sending gifted people out to do extra local mission and churches, listen, willing to accept responsibility for their community, for the evangelism of their community. And this is what it means for a church to be missional. This is what it means to, for a church to be on mission. It means that a church is accepting responsibility as given by God for its community. Accepting responsibility to send extra locally and accepting responsibility to reach locally. Send and reach. Send and reach. And you know what this means practically? It means that the Great Commission lays claim to all of us. It means we can all participate in the Great Commission. It's just a matter of whether it's going to be local or extra local, sending or being sent. And so we need a Great Commission motivation, yes, indeed, that inspires some to go. May some go. But we also need a Great Commission motivation that releases most people to stay, to stay in their community, to join a local church, and to accept responsibility for their community, to go forth in their community and be on mission so that God's name can be glorified, so that the gospel can go forward. See, please don't make the mistake that I made as a new believer that the only way to be on mission, the only way to participate in the Great Commission is to have your passport stamped. Because most, most Christians... <coughs> 
Most Christians participate in the Great Commission in very simple rhythms. You know, they support their local church, they reach non-Christians in their area, and their support, they support those that are called to lead us into extra local missions. So, part of the reason you've been given the job that you've been given is because that's, that's your field. The reason that you're in the neighborhood that you're in, that, that's your field. The reason that you're in this particular community, the reason why we should be inviting neighbors over or we should be inviting folks over for a swim or inviting them next Sunday to the Easter service is is because we're willing before God to accept responsibility for the Great Commission as a local church to accept our responsibility for our community. So our commission is great because it's not simply about other people, but because all can participate. Last point. Last point. Our, our commission is great because it comes with the promise of God's enduring presence. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Is there a more comforting promise that, that God not only goes before us. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, he, he prepares good works for us to walk in. God not only goes before us, but He then accompanies us as we go. Behold, I am with you always. And how long is He with us? Even to the end of the age. Now, can, can anyone experience the thrill in our heart. For, for those of us that are here that are like me and don't feel like you're strong in evangelism, strong in reaching out, strong in, in stepping out of ourselves towards another person to be able to invite them to something or to be able to reach out and just share the love of God with them. Can anything thrill the heart of each of us any more than this statement that God is with us in our going and He's with us to the end of the age? For those of us who might have people in mind right now that we want to invite to the Easter service next week, but maybe we, don't, we feel like we don't have the courage or the clarity or we're concerned that we're, we're going to stand before them and just not know what to say, our mind will go blank. Can anything be more encouraging than this reality? I'm with you. I'm with you in your going. And you know how long I'm with you? To the end of the age. And then we're together one-on-one -on -one for the remainder of eternity. See, we tend to kind of isolate and extract this verse, slap it on Hallmark cards, God is with us to the end of the age. But the context of that promise is the mission. The idea behind that promise is that God is with us in our going. As we go forth, God is with us. As we seek to plant churches, God is with us. As we reach out to our neighbors, God is with us. As we invite people to Easter next week, God is with us in our going. And you know how long he's there as we go? You know how long? Always. Even to the end of the age. You know what I love about the Gospel of Matthew? It, is it kind of starts with this announcement of Emmanuel, God is with us. 
God is with us, has come, Emmanuel has come, and it ends, the end of Matthew reminds us that Jesus is hanging around for the mission part of the program. He's not just ascended on high and bailed out and said, okay, I've wound up the earth. I hope you do well down there being on mission. He says, no, no, I'm there. I'm right there. I'm right there for the mission part of the program. I'm with you always. We don't go forth alone. We don't sacrifice alone. Emmanuel is there. Maybe that's why he could mobilize the disciples, even though some doubted. Did you check out that, that passage, that little thing that's inserted in there? Where is that? Where is that in Verse 17, and when he saw them, they worshipped him. And then these three words, of the eleven, but some doubted. Are you serious? Are you for real, Jesus, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who was crucified and risen, who was standing there talking to them after he was raised from the dead, and yet some of them have doubts? How does Jesus respond to that? Does he rebuke them? Does he say, this is ridiculous, you're, you're, you're off the field, go sit on the bench till you th- rethink this whole thing. No, this is, this is what Jesus does. He's, he says, you know what, I get it, I know. I know some of you have doubts, that's cool, I'm sending you anyway. Your doubts will be resolved in your going. Do you have any doubts this morning? Your doubts will be resolved in your going. Do you, have any, do you have any doubts that your effort can really bear fruit within your job? Your doubts will be resolved in your going. Do you have any, any questions about whether your initiative can really make a difference within your neighborhood? Your doubts will be resolved in your going. I guess that's the benefit of having someone with you who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's nice having somebody like that along with us, isn't it? Because our doubts can be resolved. He's got all authority, heaven and earth. He's sending us. He's going with us. Even if we doubt, he says, that's cool. Just get going. I'll meet you in the field. I'm out ahead of you. I'll meet you there. I'm in the harvest. I'm waiting for you there. What does that mean for you this morning? I I know this is frightening. It's frightening for me. It's frightening for all of us. God's not saying walk outside and and, and go over to the convenience store and start preaching the gospel to everybody there? No. He's just saying, well, who do you know? Who have I divinely and sovereignly connected you to? Do you have doubts? That's okay, too. Do you wonder whether you can really be effective? That's okay. I get that. I've secured all authority in heaven and on earth. I've sent you. I'm going to go with you. And those doubts you have, just get in motion. Your doubts will be resolved in your going. I have to admit, I think my understanding of Matthew 28 has made the Great Commission even greater to me. Even greater than when I kind of zealously stood tall at the Keith Green Memorial Concert because I realized that I could be vitally involved in a commission that is made truly great. It is great because it comes from one who has great authority. It is great because it, has, it comes from one who has entrusted it to the local church. It's great because we can all participate. It's great because it carries this extraordinary promise that we were just talking about, that he will be with us to the end of the age. 
And that even if you're sitting here with doubts this morning that your life can make a difference, that you can really reach people effectively, that God would use you, yes, even you, God says, get in motion. I'm with you. Your doubts will be resolved in your going. And I guess that's just a small part of what makes the Great Commission truly great.